child asked his father, how were people born? So his father said, Adam and Eve made babies, then their babies became adults and made babies and so on. The child then went to his mother and asked her the same question, and she told him, we were monkeys, then we evolved, evolved to become like we are now. And the child ran back to his father and said, you lied to me. And his father replied, no, your mom was talking about her side of the family. <laughs> a funny joke, but illustrative nonetheless of the fact that we live in a culture and a society with many conflicting views about many different things. We see conflict arise in nearly every subject that we raise. Whatever it is, you bring up any subject, you're going to find somebody with a differing viewpoint from your own. And more often than not, you're going to find a, a multitude of different viewpoints. We see, as was posed in the joke this morning, some of the greater questions that man has raised over time. How did we get here? Why are we here? But beyond those great philosophical questions, we have differing viewpoints on even the most mundane of things. Ask somebody the question about which is better, smaller government or larger government? and see the multitude of opinions that you get. But it extends even further than that. Should I eat low-fat or low-carb? Coke or Pepsi? We have differing opinions on just about everything that there is. Everything has a different opinion. And now we've come to a time in our culture where even some of the things that we've treated as universal truths in time past have even come up now uh, in conflict. There are many different views about society, and our society is changing so quickly today with all of the things that are going on. We're seeing now things that we used to take for granted being challenged and being called not true anymore or not true for this generation. We see that with the, the changing views on the roles of men and women, the institute of marriage. We see it with the changing family structure and the way that families are structured and the way that they're ordered, the way that they're led. Our views on things are changing so quickly. And I believe this is because there's a secular agenda that is taking over this country and is changing many of the views that you and I have held dear for, for so many years and for so many generations. Christ followers today are beginning to ask themselves questions of how do I live out my Christian values in a world today? How do I live out my Christian values in this secular world? Because the secular world or the secular agenda advocates for the rights of the individual at the expense of the rights or the needs of the family. They elevate the one person's personal needs or personal desires to be of the utmost importance, the highest thing, even at the expense of other family members or other people in society. They've given up on the idea that self-sacrifice should benefit the family and instead taken on the mantra that self-satisfaction at the expense of the family is most important for me. What I need, what I want is the most important thing. Christ followers are asking the question, how do I live out what the Bible teaches in a world that's espousing this, these beliefs? We know that Christians are called to live to a different standard. And today we're going to begin a new series. We're going to start looking at the family, and we're going to see what, see what God's plans for families are. That series that we're going to begin is called Timeless Truths for Today's Families. And today we're going to begin by looking at God's divine pattern for family life. We're going to see how God intended for people to interact with other members of their family, with their spouses, with people in their workplaces, and see how new life in Christ has affected the way that people should live their lives. New life in Christ begets a new pattern for living. And that new pattern for living has to affect everything that I do, every relationship that I have, and everything that I do. We're going to see today in Colossians chapter 3 how Paul, the Apostle Paul, outlines for us what that new pattern for living looks like. 
He says in Colossians 3 that, that the new life in Christ has to change everything about me. It touches everything that I do. I've been completely transformed from the inside out. When Christ saved me, he completely changed me into something new. The Bible talks about the transformation that Christ brings into people's lives in terms of a heart transplant. My heart, my old stony heart, my resistant heart, my selfish heart has been removed. And Christ has implanted something brand new, a new heart that is geared toward him and toward love and toward the things of Christ's kingdom. The apostle is going to outline in this chapter for us a number of different things that affect the relationship or how that should affect our relationship and our activities and our attitudes in our lives. But our focal passage this morning is going to be directed specifically at families and at family life. And we're going to begin there this morning as we begin to explore this, the divine pattern for family life. What we see here is the, the building block or the foundation for family life is a marriage. No matter who you are, no matter where you came from, you and all the rest of us started with two people who got together, got married, and had children. A marriage is the foundation for family life, and it begins there. And the apostle is going to begin to talk about the relationships in a marriage, how they are supposed to function. Now, there's a couple of things that we want to understand this morning as we get into this text. Number one, this letter, this book, is written to a group of believers. It was not addressed to the world. And there's a very specific reason for that, and it's because the world can't live up to the standards that God has set. God's standards are only able to be lived up to by people who are in God's family, who belong to God, who have been transformed by Christ. They can't live up to the standard he's set here. We want to keep that in mind. And then secondly, we want to remember here that the apostle is addressing married people here. The truths that we're going to look at here in this next passage are addressed toward married people. Within that context of that marriage relationship, we see that there are defined roles for husbands and wives. That's what we're going to see first, is there are some very defined roles. And in our culture today, we tend to look down on these defined roles. We look at things more like, well, I should be what I want to be, whatever I feel like. I don't necessarily need to make sacrifices for others. I want to do things the way that I want to do them. The Bible doesn't speak in those terms. The Bible talks about how God has predetermined certain roles for husbands and wives within the marriage relationship to best reflect his will and purpose for family life. We need to understand that both members of the family, or excuse me, of the marriage in that family relationship, the husband and the wife, are of equal value. All people in the kingdom of God are of equal value. We've studied that truth time and time again here on Sunday morning. In Christ, we're all the same. There's no partiality with God no matter who we are. So we want to understand that first. But we see in the marriage relationship that even though there's equality in essence or equality in personhood, we need to see that there's subordination in role. Someone has to take the lead. Someone has to be in charge. And God has determined that that position would be fulfilled by the husband. And we're going to see how God has set forth roles and commands for both members of the marriage relationship to function. First, we're going to see uh, of these two attitudes the role or the attitude for the wife. In verse 18, he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. We see here first for wives that we need to exude a submissive spirit is what this passage is communicating here. And there's a couple of different things we want to look at in this particular verse. It's a short verse, but we need to understand first that this is a command. It's written in the imperative. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. This is what you will do, what you shall do. And you will do it from the get-go. This is not something that you do in response to the actions of your spouse, but rather it's a command from God that you will do this. And we need to understand that this command is directed toward wives. This is not directed toward women generally. 
This is directed toward wives. Remember, we want to confine our discussion to that of the marriage relationship. It says that wives should submit to their husbands. And that's the big word there that creates all the debate, submit. What does it mean to submit? Well, we need to understand, number one, that to submit is a voluntary thing. To submit is a voluntary thing. It's not something that's forced or something that's demanded or something that's required, but rather it's a voluntary action. It calls on wives here to voluntarily submit to the authority or the leadership of their husband. The way that we see this most often portrayed out, I think, is probably in the way that military uh, personnel function. They voluntarily or willingly submit to the authority of their commanding officer. Okay, That's kind of what the apostle has in view here. Submitting to the authority of someone who's above me, not because they are greater or more superior or in any way better, but rather because this is simply the way the chain of command or the order of God has been determined. We need to also remember that submission is not subjugation. There's a big difference between those words there. Submission is a word that, constitute, that connotes a voluntary action. Subjugation is something that's done by force. We think of this when a military takes over a country and it brings the people under subjugation. By force, it controls these people and brings them under authority by force, whatever it takes. That's not what's in view in this passage. In this passage is a willing submission, something that the wife willingly gives to her husband because it's commanded by God. There's a reason for this, and what we want to see here is why is the reason that this is commanded to be this way? The end of verse 18 tells us it says that it's fitting in the Lord. Remember, the apostle is addressing people in this passage who have been converted, who have been changed, who have been transformed by Christ. They are now in the family of God. And what he's communicating is that for those in the family of God, this is the way in which you should behave. This is the way that God has commanded for you to behave. It's fitting in the Lord. And there's a parallel passage to this one in Colossians that I'm sure we've studied before in Ephesians chapter 5. And it expands on this idea and this teaching just a little bit, and I want to read part of that to you. In verse 22 of chapter 5 in Ephesians, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. A lot of information packed there into those couple of verses. We begin to see the reason for this submission here. We see that the marriage between man and woman is really a picture of the marriage between Christ and the church. And nowhere is this more better exemplified, I think, than within the relationships of the Godhood itself. We've looked at this concept of the Trinity before in our theology class on Sunday nights. And we've talked about how within the members of the Trinity, we have three persons. We have God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each one of these members is equally God. No member is any less or any more than the other. They are equally God. And we understand that they are equal in all things and equal in all ways and equal in all value. But yet within the, within the members of the Godhood, we see that there's a subordination in role. Someone is in charge. Someone is leading. Someone is directing. And we see this played out in a couple of different themes throughout the Bible. If we look at the theme of creation, we see that God the Father was the one who planned and directed the creation of mankind, the earth, and all that's in it. Genesis 1-1 tells us that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We see that the Father is responsible for the plan. He's responsible for creation. But if we flip over to the Gospel of John and look at chapter 1 there, we see that Christ is actually the one who carried out the creation. It said, in him all things were made, and without him nothing was made. Christ was the one who went about the action of carrying out the creation. 
And the Bible also tells us that the Spirit of God was present. It was hovering over the waters. The Spirit of God was there empowering the act of creation. We see all three members of the Trinity active in that creation process. We see it also in the process of redemption. We know that it's God's will, it's God's plan, it's God's purpose that Christ came into the world to die for our sins. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. In love, God sent Christ into the world to save you and me. That was his plan, his direction. It was done under his authority. But we all know that Jesus is the one who carried out that plan. Jesus is the one who laid aside his godliness, his Godhead, took on the form of a man, came to the earth, and eventually went to a cross to die to pay for the sins that you and I have committed. We know that he was the one who carried out that plan. And the spirit we know is the one who resurrected Christ from the grave. It was through his power that Christ was resurrected and that our redemption was earned. That's the picture that we see in the marriage relationship. Co-equal people, co-equal spouses, but a subordination in role. Someone is leading, someone is directing, and someone is following. And the wife is called to submit to the authority of her husband. But we want to note the duality of this passage here. The wife is not the only one called to do something. In fact, if we look at the next verse, we see that the husband is called to an even greater responsibility. We see that the husband is to exemplify a sacrificial heart. She's to exude a submissive spirit, but he's to exemplify a sacrificial heart. Verse 19, husbands, love your fathers and do not be harsh with them. Love your wives. Love your wives, he says. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. We see first here a command. The word love is the operative word in this passage here. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago of our study of John 3.16. We saw that word love, which is the Greek word agape or agapeo in this, in this context. It means unconditional and sacrificial love. We saw how in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that God unconditionally and sacrificially sent Christ into the world to die for you and me. God gave his best. God completely sacrificed his most valued thing and gave it to us because of our need. Because we needed to be saved. We see in this passage that God is commanding the same thing for husbands. He says to love your wives. It has the same connotation to unconditionally and sacrificially love your wife. To give your best. To surrender all. To give all of yourself for her need. Now many husbands today I don't think are probably living up to this standard. Most of us are still pretty selfish people. We're trying to live our own way, kind of do our own thing, and kind of get by. But that's not what God is calling us to do in this passage here. He says that we're supposed to sacrifice and surrender everything that we have in order for the benefit of our wives. And I wonder how many marriage relationships would function so much healthier and so much better if we were living up to this standard that God has called he says to love your wives. There's a parallel passage in Ephesians 5.25. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We see that picture again of that relationship between Christ and the church and the husband and the wife. Christ gave everything. He laid aside all that he was, came to this earth, and gave his very life for us. That's what he's commanding in this passage to you, husbands. Give up everything that you are, even your very life, for your wife. Surrender all. And I wonder how many more wives would be so much more willing to submit and follow their part if husbands were living up to what God has called them to do. Perhaps we need to set our better example and be more obedient ourselves. And then we would see the things that we expect and believe out of our wives. That's a, that's a, a twofold thing. It's interesting here in this passage, I think, that 
These are commands. They're not suggestions. I must do this. I should do this. I have to do this. I have to love her sacrificially. I have to be willing to do that. And she has to be willing to submit to my authority. Both of these are commands, but they build on one another. I think a wife is much more likely to be submissive if her husband is loving her sacrificially. And I think a husband is much more likely to love sacrificially if he's getting the respect that he feels that he deserves from his wife. Men and women operate on two principles, love and respect. Women need to feel loved. Men need to feel respected. And when those two things get crossed or one is getting uh, more attention than the other, then things start to go off track. God says here that if both are doing their part, then the marriage will function in the way that it's supposed to. He offers a caution here as well in this passage. Look at the end of verse uh, 19. He says, do not be harsh with your wife. Don't be harsh with her. What does that mean? Well, does that, not, does that just mean don't speak you know, loudly to her or something like that? <coughs> Excuse me. I don't believe so. I think what the passage is referring to here is this, not to make your wife bitter or not be bitter toward her. Don't treat your role as the husband in the family, as the leader in the family, as the director in the family, like you're an authoritarian. Your wife is not your employee. She is not your maid. She is not your servant. She is your mate. God gave her to you to be a mate and equal. You two are partners in a relationship. Too often, I think men and husbands have been willing, overly willing to treat our wives badly and to abuse the authority that God has given us and tried to turn them into something that God never intended. And that caution is here in this verse for that very reason. Do not be harsh with them. Do not make them bitter toward you. Do not make them resent your authority. Treat them fairly and treat them right, and they will respect you, and they will be willing to submit as opposed to you trying to do it by force. Husbands and wives are to treat one another with love and respect. God has created them equally. God has created us to function in relationship with our husbands or with our wives. When those two things get off track, that love and respect, problems are soon around the corner. And it's that foundation of that marriage relationship that we have to get right. Because from that, build all of our other family relationships. And we see here in our second point that that relationship... That, that new life in Christ transformed not only the relationship of marriage, but it also transforms how we are, do our parenting. Our parent-child relationships are affected as well. Uh, new life in Christ dictates that I develop the proper practice in my relationships. I can't just treat my wife or my husband right, but it has to extend to everything in life. And we're going to see here that that extends to the parent-child relationship. We see this hierarchy within this relationship between parents and children. It's one that we're familiar with. Most of us in here have raised children, or we were at least raised by our parents, either way. But there's a hierarchy there. There's something that's required of each party. One has to obey and one has to direct. We see that same hierarchy that we saw in the marriage relationship, same hierarchy we see inside the Trinity. There's a, there's a dual relationship here. This is not to diminish the value of one over the other. We want to see that here. Children have value. They have value to the kingdom in the same way that you and I have value to the kingdom. This was contained in this book here because we assume that the Apostle Paul expected children to be sitting in the service and hearing these words preached just as they are today. It's Family Sunday today, and we've got several kids in here this morning. The Apostle would have expected no less And what he was doing was including the children in his teaching so that they would understand that they have value not only in their families, but in the family of God, in the kingdom of God. And they have a role to play. Now, they're called to certain things, and their parents are called to certain things, and that's what we want to explore next. We're going to see here that this is all about attitude. This is all about attitude. Parents are to have a certain attitude. Children are to have a certain attitude as well. For the child, you need to exhibit exhibit an obedient attitude. 
The passage is crystal clear on how children are to behave. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Obey your parents in everything, it says. First, it addresses children. We want to understand who the children are that he's talking about. In the context of this passage, we're looking at children who are younger children, those who are still living in the household of their parents or under the direct authority of their parents. This passage is not talking about older children who've moved on and are running their own families now, but rather those young children who are still dwelling with their parents. They are the ones he's talking to, and he tells them they must obey. Now, that word obey is the operative word in this, passion, in this passage. And it's very similar to the word we explored a minute ago, submit. But it's a much stronger word. Whereas submission or to submit is a voluntary action that someone takes on their part, obedience is something that's demanded. Obedience is something that's required. And the apostle says to the children here, obey. Your obedience is demanded. In the parallel passage in Ephesians, he expands a little bit and says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. The apostle says that you should obey. Why? Because it fulfills the Ten Commandments. To honor your father and mother was one of the Ten Commandments. And he says here that this hasn't changed. This commandment needs to be fulfilled. Children are to obey unquestioningly. There's no exception. They are to obey completely because it fulfills the Ten Commandments, and also because it offers a promise of reward. It says this is the only commandment that comes with a promise, that you would do well or that you would inherit a blessing if you're faithful to obeying this commandment. Children are to obey. Those who are in the Lord are to obey, because we see the reason for this as well. It pleases the Lord. Children are to obey because that pleases the Lord. Not only does it make your mom and dad happy, but it pleases the Lord. Again, we see this idea that those in the family of God are to behave a certain way. And that way is often different to what we see in the world. In the world today, I think we've almost seen a reversal of this concept. Rather than parents leading and directing their children, we see children running households now. I often see people who the activities and the needs and the desires of the children are forefront in the family life. Everything is geared around taking care of their desires, their wants, and their needs, from birthday parties and sports activities, extracurricular activities, school activities, whatever it may be. The entire family life is geared around taking care of children. And I don't mean to say that children aren't important or that they shouldn't be put at the top of our to-do list or anything like that, but I think we've taken it to such an extreme that we're neglecting some of the other relationships in our families. Perhaps a little more time maybe needed to be spent with our spouse or be attending to time with God or things of that nature. But we've almost elevated our children now, I believe, to the place of an idol. We've put them before anything else. The Bible says that well, I can't do that. God must come first, and God's commands fall right in line with that. Children are to be obedient, but parents are not to make an idol out of them either. We see also that there is a, there is a duality in this passage as well. It's addressed to children first, but secondly, it's addressed to fathers. Children are to obey absolutely, but fathers have the greater responsibility. The passage requires them to, not to be an authoritarian, but rather to employ an encouraging approach. Fathers are to be in control. They are to lead and direct their children, but they are not to be an authoritarian. They're supposed to be in an encouraging, building up type of father. The Bible warns us so much through and through, particularly if you read through Proverbs, about raising your children in such a way that they grow and that they mature and not discouraging them, not tearing them down, not beating them down, not breaking their spirit, but rather lifting them up 
elevating them so that they grow in the Lord. And that's the idea that's in view here in this passage. We see in verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Do not provoke your children. Don't make them angry. Don't make them bitter. Don't be overly critical. Don't be overbearing. That's what it's trying to communicate here. Don't be somebody who's constantly picking at them, somebody who's constantly nagging at them. Don't tear them down at every opportunity you get. We see this a lot. Kids are constantly being talked down to and told that they can't live up to a standard, that they're not living up to some predetermined standard. Well, maybe they weren't equipped to live up to that standard. We have to be careful not to break the spirit of our children, but rather to lift them up and to elevate them in all that we do. This warning here is to not provoke them, or in other words, to not discourage them. And the discouragement that's in view here is the idea of not discouraging them to the point where they quit, where they give up. And that's very easy to do. I I know a number of people who I can see some of the damage that has come through from their childhood. They're, They're unwilling to take chances. They are unwilling to launch out and do the things that God has called them to do because of that attitude, that sense of fear that was beaten into, beaten's not a good word, that was drilled into them as a, as, a, as a younger child. That you're not good enough, that you can't do it, that even if you succeed some, you're failing somewhere else. This is what we communicate to kids a lot. Rather than praising them for the successes that we have, we tend to look in the areas in their life where they're not doing well, and we criticize them for that. That's what the apostle has in mind here. Don't be overly critical. Don't tear your children down to the point where they give up. Raise them up where they keep charging forward. There's also some wisdom in this passage. It talks about being an encourager, someone who lifts up or builds up. We need to build them up. We need to accentuate the positive. Positive reinforcement achieves so much more than negative. I don't want to give you the idea that I'm trying to say that discipline or correction are are not necessary or a bad thing. They are very important. The Bible commands it. But if all I do is discipline and correction and I never do any encouragement, what am I going to end up doing to my child? I'm going to end up breaking his spirit is what I'm going to do. And he's never going to become what God intended for him to be because of what I've done to him. Encouragement is a very important thing. It's a very important concept in the raising of children. We see this parallel, I think, in, in if you've ever been in a mentoring type relationship. A mentor is someone who wields immense influence in the life of someone that they're mentoring. And if you watch these relationships, the ones that are successful usually are the ones that have involved people who are encouragers and people who build up other people and who celebrate the successes of other people. Ones who are overly critical and tear them down and break them down, man, they never end up going anywhere. And that's what the Bible has in view here. Be somebody who can help your child and elevate your child. The Bible puts the burden on you, fathers. The the passage notice here is not directed at mom and dad. It's not directed at parents. It's directed at fathers. Why? Because you as the authority in your family, as the leader in your family, have been given the greater responsibility. We saw this back in the story of Genesis when Adam and Eve were in the garden and they went to the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and Eve was there and she took the fruit and it says that she gave some to her husband who was with her. The Bible tells us that it was Eve who sinned in the garden, yet we know that Adam is the one who was held accountable for it. The Apostle Paul would speak about that later on. It says Eve was the one who sinned, but Adam was the one who was held accountable. Our sin nature that we all have was passed down to us through Adam, not through Eve. The husband is held to a higher degree of responsibility. And in this passage, we see that as well. They are, the fathers and the husbands are held to the utmost responsibility level. We need to remember that encouragement is our best route. 
It's the best thing that we can do for our children. It was Martin Luther who said that spare the rod and spoil the child. That is true. But next to the rod, keep an apple to give him when he's done well. Encouragement goes so much further than discouragement when it comes to raising our children. The old saying that children are to be seen and not heard couldn't be further from the biblical truth. God has created children and parents to be of equal value in the kingdom. We all have something to contribute to God's family. None should be diminished. None should be devalued. None should be demoted. But rather, all should be raised up in love and encouragement. We need to spend more of our time encouraging our children, raising them up, and making them better people than we do tearing them down. We will always get better results through encouragement. And then there's a third set of relationships here that I want to spend just a few minutes with you on. This one seems a little bit to fall outside of the family dynamic, but I believe it fits right in because it's going to deal with our workplace relationships. And as most of you know, workplace relationships have a large bearing on our family relationships as well. Many of us live one way at home and we live another at work. The Bible, I believe, is trying to communicate here that we can't do that. We must live the same life at work that we live at home because the two won't be compatible. If we're living different lives, that will eventually be revealed and we will eventually break down. Now, in the first century when this passage was written, we know that this passage was directed toward slaves or toward bond servants, as the Bible calls them here, toward slaves and masters. Now, that's a, that's a concept and an idea that has gone by the wayside in our culture today that doesn't exist, at least for us here in America, any longer. But the principles that are here are still true for us. They're still applicable to us. The closest parallel that we have in this situation is the relationships between employees and employers. And that's the attitude we're going to take as we look at this passage, because I believe it's going to bear out the truth that what we do at work is, is directly dependent on how we live at home. We need to, number three, demonstrate the proper perspective in my work. We've got to have the right perspective about what it is we're doing at work, how we got there, what we're doing, the way we're to behave, and so forth and so on. We need to have the right perspective. I need first to accept the will of God for my life. We need to understand that God has placed us individually in the places where we are. Wherever we're working, whatever we're doing is because God has placed us there. And he's put us in that place because he has a unique role for us to fulfill. And we need to embrace that. We need to embrace our position and wherever God has placed us. Ephesians 6, 8 tells us, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or he is free. We see here that this doesn't only apply to slaves or to bondservants, but rather to paid labor as well. Even if you're a freedman and you're working for someone and he's paying your wages, you'll be paid back for that, for the way that you work that relationship. You need to see that it applies to all of us equally. I need to embrace my position fully. God has put me here for a reason. He's given me a responsibility. He's placed me in this place for a very specific reason, and I need to try and fulfill that to the best of my ability. Titus 2, 9 and 10 tells us, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. What is he communicating there? He says that God has put you in the position you're in and the job you're in for a very specific reason. And you're to take that job seriously. You're to live up to the standard, not that the boss has set for you, but the standard that God has set for you. Why? 
Because you're a member of the family of God. You're part of the family of Christ, and you represent Christ everywhere you go. Not only in your home with your wife and with your children, but in your workplace with your boss and with your coworkers. They see who you are. They know who you've professed to be. You say that you're a Christ follower, but are you actually living up to it? And he wants to go in here now and explain to us the the characteristics of what it means to be a good worker, to be a worker who represents Christ in an honest and forthright manner. We see the manner in which I'm to work in verse 22, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. The manner in which I'm to work is to work as if I'm working for the Lord. I'm not working for the man. I'm working for God. God has put me in this position. He has given it to me and I need to do everything to his glory. I shouldn't just work hard when the boss is watching. I don't want to be working by way of eye service. That's what that means there. Don't just work hard when the boss is watching and then when he leaves or goes around the corner, you go back to what you were doing. But rather you continue to work hard and you work heartily. You work with a sincere heart. What does that mean? To work with a sincere heart means that I take this responsibility, this job as my own. God has given it to me, and I'm going to do the best of my abilities to fulfill whatever this is. I'm going to be sincere in my work. I'm not going to try and cheat the boss out of something. I'm not going to try and do a halfway job. I'm not going to do an average job, but I'm going to do the best that I can do according to my ability. I'm going to work heartily. I'm going to give it my all. I'm going to give it all my effort, and I'm going to do everything as if it's for the Lord. Because as we're going to see in a minute, God is the one who's watching, and God is the one who will reward our work in heaven. Colossians 3.17 tells us, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to, the, to God the Father through him. Whatever I do, do it in the name of God. Do it in the name of Christ. I'm representing him wherever I go. Next, we see the motive for my attitude. Why do I have the attitude that I have? Why do I have the work ethic that I have? Why do I live up to the standard that I do? Three reasons. First, there's a reward. Verse 24 knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. God is the one who is watching. For those of us who are working for people and feel that we're being cheated or we're not being valued or that we've been diminished in some capacity, we need to remember that God is watching. God sees what we do, and God is the one who will repay us for what we've done. Whether we're not being treated rightly at our job or not, God is watching, and God is the one who will repay when I'm working as for the Lord, when I'm giving it my all, when I'm working heartily and doing it for him, he will repay me. The reward might be a ways off. It might be in heaven, but God can pay greater rewards than any man ever thought about doing here on earth. God is the one who's watching. My attitude is because I know that God will reward me. I also have to have a recognition here. Verse 24 says, you are serving the Lord Christ. You are serving Jesus. He's your master. He's the one you're working for. He's the one who's watching you, and people of the world are watching you or watching him through you. They see the way that you live your life, the way that you work your job, the attitude that you have. You are representing Jesus to the world out there. And when I do things to cause my employer distress or to short him on my time or something of that nature, I bring dishonor to the name of Christ. I'm supposed to give it my all to do everything that I can. Thirdly, I have this attitude because of a retribution. Verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So we see that not only will God reward those who've done well, those who've worked hard, who've gave it their all, not only do we recognize that we are serving Christ and not man, but also we need to see that God is going to bring about retribution to those who have done wrong. 
Those who have cheated their employers, those who have cheated on their time by coming in late or leaving early, taking an extra long lunch than they were supposed to have, spending time playing on the internet when they should have been working, all of those things are cheating your employer. God is keeping a record. God is keeping a tab, and it's a running tab of you and your work and your ethic and your attitude. The Bible says you're not going to get away with that. While you may get away with it at your job and get away with it with your employer, you won't get away with it with God. He is watching, and he will bring recompense to those who are cheating their employer because he says that there is no partiality with God. God sees us all the same. God sees the employee and employer as the same. They're simply in different roles that God has placed them in. In the same way that the husband and wife are equal, yet in different roles because God has put them there, in the same way that parent and child are equal, yet in different roles because God has put them there, so are employee and employer. You're only in a different role because God has determined that position for you. Your value to God and your value to the kingdom is in Christ. Okay, God has placed you for there for that reason. And again, the apostle turns and directs his attention now toward the employer or the master. Finally, we see that for those in authority, I need to exercise my power faithfully. If you're in authority over someone, God didn't put you there to mistreat people. God put you there because you're a person that he expected to, to wield your authority faithfully. You're supposed to do right by people who are under you. You're supposed to do right by people who you, whom you have authority over. You're supposed to treat them fairly and treat them justly. Verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. He addresses them on a couple of different actions here. He says to treat them justly. You have to do what's right. In the same way that an employee is not to defraud his employer on his time or something of that nature, an employer should not do the same thing. An employer should not ask an employee to stay after and work off the clock, should not ask him to do things that go against his faith or against his will. An employer is to treat his employee justly. Somebody needs to answer their phone. But um, at any rate, the parallel passage in Ephesians 6, 9 says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. God in heaven is watching. You two work for the same master. Just because God has put you in a position of authority does not give you the ability to mistreat that person. He says, don't be threatening to them. Don't constantly be nagging them, irritating them, threatening them with losing their job or having to stay late or work a rotten shift or something like that. He says to be fair with them. Treat them the way that you would want to be treated. Treat them the way that you would expect God to treat you because your master is their master and he's watching you from heaven. And the part we read about the rewards, the retribution, and the recognition applies equally here to the master or to the employer. It wasn't just directed toward one, but it's directed toward both. There's a reward for those who are in authority and do right and are faithful. There's a retribution also for those who are doing wrong and not treating their employees correctly. God has given specific roles for each and every one of us. He's placed us in the position that we're in for a very specific reason. We need to remember that it is he who gave us our position. We didn't earn it on our own. We didn't get it on our own. We need to exercise faithfully the authority that God has given to us, but we also need to embrace the position that we're in. It's often a difficult thing for people to have to embrace the position they're in that when they feel like they're being mistreated, when the conditions are not right, when they feel like they're not being paid correctly. That's a hard thing to do. But God says, I'm the one who will repay you. I'm the one who's keeping track. 
I'm the one who's watching what's going on down there. And we need to remember to be submissive to him and to what he's commanded us to do and not pay attention to the one whom he set in authority over us here. We won't all have great bosses. Many of us won't have Christian bosses. They won't live up to the standard that God has set for them. That doesn't negate my responsibility to live up to the standard that God has set for me. Now, these relationships here have just been an example of how there's so many conflicting views in our society and in our culture today. So many of these relationships, I think, people have been taken advantage of, whether they be a husband or a wife, a parent or a child, or an employer or employer. Because of the different views that we have today, people have been taken advantage of, and they've been mistreated. What we need to remember is that as Christ followers, we were called to live to a different standard. All of the things that we read that we went through very quickly this morning are all commands. God says, you will do this. You must do this. This is not a suggestion or an option. He says that you will do this, and you will do these things regardless of what the conditions here on earth are. I've placed you here in whatever role you're in for a purpose, and you need to fulfill that purpose. And as we go forward in our time and things become more difficult, and I'm, and I'm convinced that they will, they won't become easier. They'll become more difficult for Christ followers. We need to remember that God's divine pattern is here. We need to follow the pattern that is in this Bible that he has set forth for us. Because when we do that, we bring him the greatest glory and we bring ourselves the greatest benefit. My greatest benefit is realized in bringing glory to God. If I'm a Christ follower and I'm glorifying him, I benefit from that. That's what God has given to us. He says, do what I say, do what's here, and you'll be blessed because of it. God's divine pattern will bring blessing and it will bring glory to God. Let's pray. 